Hello! Welcome to Foss and Crafts. A podcast about free software, free culture, and making things together. With my co-host, Morgan. And my co-host, Chris. Well, today we're talking about crafting the past, or trying to. And the various ways that people do that. Um, so... Maybe uh, this time we should just jump straight into that. We've kind of got three subdomains we're looking at. Do you want to just give us the names of each one of the subdomains and then we'll kind of hop into each one one by one? Yeah, so broad overview, we're looking at three different types of activity. One is experiential historical crafts, which is basically just doing them. And then experimental archaeology, where you test things about them. And then the other one is reenactment communities. Okay, so let's get into each one of these. So experiential historical crafts. So what what does that mean? So that means that you are doing historical crafts to get an idea of the experience, the lived experiences of people in the past. So this can mean a lot of things in a lot of different ways. So... At the at the core of it, you're just going through processes. So, for example, um, since my dissertation is on historical textile production and specifically women's roles in it, at the very beginning, before my dissertation topic was even accepted as a dissertation topic, I decided to learn how to spin wool on a drop spindle so that I could get the experience of what I was writing about. I'm a big believer that if you are going to spend any decent amount of time writing about a process, you should learn as much as you can about the way that it's actually done through this experiential learning. Could be learning how to spin based off of YouTube channels, because you can. It could be um, going to a historical site like Colonial Williamsburg or other historical sites where they have people doing demonstrations of these historical crafts and then you learn that way. So um, can you give me some examples of people doing this type of stuff? Yeah, so I already mentioned my own of spinning. Um, and that was the, the first thing I learned for his- historical textile production that the Greeks and Romans did. And then later I built a pretty like miniature replica of a warp-weighted loom. And then I more recently built a Roman tubing loom to weave on. But this can be done in a lot of different ways. For example, there are people who have learned how to do flint napping which is basically the process of making stone tools by taking two stones and knocking them together in a specific way so that one stone has flakes knocked off of it to create sharp edges. So flint napping or flint mapping? Napping, with a K. Oh, huh. (laughs) I always just assumed that it was mapping, and I always figured, like, you were mapping the shape off of... I have no idea what, like, you know, out of the shape in your mind or something. I don't know. Um, But okay, so... I guess an example maybe in computing that we might think about is when people want to run really old computers or emulate old computers or get old hardware working and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. 
like my friend uh, Tristan, who appeared on this show earlier, uh, and I both were learning 6502 assembly recently um, and kind of doing like our own little mini user group about that, which is like the processor that was um, architecture that was used on like the old Nintendo Entertainment System and like the Commodore 64 and a bunch of other stuff. And it was like really interesting to learn that. Um, what do you think that would qualify as experiential historical crafts, even though I guess oh, it's I only. Yeah. So it, even even though computing the computing distance is not as high as, as like the the distance between that and I guess like people trying to recreate like ancient Roman practices and stuff like that. Well, I feel like historical timelines get scrunched the closer you are to them, right? Yeah, I think so, that's true. So to us, something that was a technology twenty years ago is in the computing world pretty ancient right as opposed to a 20 year period in the stone age you're not going to see a lot of difference Mm -hmm. in technology within that 20 years so do you have any other examples that you'd like to go over or should we just jump straight into the advantages and disadvantages of these approaches yeah so i mean there's a lot of examples of experiential historical crafts and like i said a lot of them are associated with historical sites so for example culinary historian michael twitty has done reenactments on plantations in the united states specifically like the slave the food that that black slaves produced in the United States. Yes, and the impact that African culture and cuisine had on shaping American cuisine because mm-hmm. for the most part the slaves were the ones doing the cooking for right. the upper class families. And I feel like um Michael Twitty's an interesting example because he kind of his work is a great example of something that kind of spans all three of these cuz and like most things have overlap with yeah, kind all, of a lot of these examples are going to be could could be talked about in any but, of the but I feel like since he he actually like really does the historical research and so on um and he's doing the reproduction in a very visible way like he's kind of crossing all of it in a way that's pretty interesting but we'll get we'll be getting back more to Michael Twitty I think as as the uh episode goes on so why don't we talk about the pros and cons of doing experimental historical craft so what are the what are the advantages experiential we're not on to experimental yet experiential historical crafts it's it's so confusing when there's experiential and then uh experimental one after another yes and it it's kind of yeah so right now we're talking about the experience right right. okay so (laughs) so so what kind of advantages can i get if i am taking this kind of approach well it's a hands-on approach to history right You learn things differently when you learn through multiple senses. So I'm an art historian, which means that obviously I believe that visual evidence from historical periods can tell us a great deal about the culture, right? That's kind of the essence of art history is looking at the visual record. But if you're doing this experiential approach to history, then you've got more tactile experience with it right you're holding the spindle in your hand you're feeling the twist in the yarn or you are banging your thumb while you're trying to flint nap and you're gonna have a bruise but won't do that again next time so so a certain amount of it is connectedness i guess 
and maybe this is more in the following section, but I think it's going to be the true of anybody who's doing exper- experiential approaches to historical crafts is you're going to have a different understanding than if you just read about it, right? The hands-on mm-hmm. imperative of, you know, like I could read documents all day about how to do what whatever kind of process or craft. But then if I sit down and I'm like, oh yeah, and of course, and then you do this and this and you're like, wait a minute, these two things don't physically work. That couldn't be right. Mm-hmm. There's a step missing here or something like that. Yeah, and, and that, I mean, there's a lot of different layers that you could say this works on too. For example, um, learning how to spin via watching YouTube videos is a lot easier than learning how to spin by reading textile historians and looking at the diagrams that they put in their articles because well, those you- are still images you said the magical word historians so we could talk about the 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 kind of the cons here but i think it it may actually be that there's not if you're just searching for the experience Mm -hmm. you might not have too many downsides at this stage and that you know you might misunderstand something but the the cost of you misunderstanding something is probably not too severe. Yeah, it's um, just the experience. You know, not to downplay an experience. But, you know, you're... There but, are, but you've got minimal cons here. Minimal consequences. Yeah. Um, so... I would um, like to say one more uh, one more anecdote about uh, the experiential side of things. Okay, go for it. So I like to spin in random places. I have a spindle, a drop spindle that I keep in my backpack and I spin when I have like, you know, 10 minutes that I'm sitting at a bus stop or in an airport or something like that. And one time I was sitting in the TA office, uh, my TA office at University of Wisconsin-Madison and one of the professors in our department walks in and she's not an ancient historian. She doesn't specialize in textiles or anything, but she walks in because she was looking for her TA who didn't happen to be in there. And she sees me spinning and she asks what I'm doing. And I explained to her that I was, that's how the Greeks and Romans and many other cultures created thread and yarn before this happened. And she's, she's like, that's fascinating. And I'm like, do you want to see how it's done? And she says, yes. And this professor just kind of like walks up and drops on her knees in front of me so that she can get like a close view of what I'm doing. Because there's an added kind of level of interest to seeing something done that you've never seen before. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's personal engagement. And plus, you also get something out of it, which is that satisfaction of like, most of these, maybe all of these, I guess if it's crafting pretty much everything, you're going to have something if it, you know, if you succeed, even if you fail, usually, Mm -hmm. that you can walk away with saying like, and look at this thing that came out of it. Yeah. And who hasn't had a craft project that was a failure, but you've got like this oddly misshapen thing that is not very impressive, but you are so proud of it. Yeah. Because you did it. Yeah, Um, absolutely. Uh, Yeah, and I can confirm Morgan's uh, having the drop spindle that um, Morgan brings to just about everywhere and is an amazing conversation starter for Morgan, Mm -hmm. who is otherwise a... I guess mostly introvert when it comes to talking to random strange people. Mm-hmm. Strange in the literal, you know, you don't know. I them don't know sense. them. Yeah, um, it's so, great for starting conversations at airports because, I, like, pretty much. Yeah, actually, that was what I was gonna say. Is that pretty much every airport terminal we've sat in, 
Morgan's pulled out a spindle if we weren't like running to the plane and people have started talking to Morgan because they were just curious about what was happening. And I've had some really interesting conversations. Like once I met an entomologist who had been studying and working with silkworms, but had never seen unspun silk that had been like, you know, processed out of the cocoons, but not spun yet. Yeah. Okay. All right. Definitely getting into the second one. So Mm -hmm. um, let's talk about... uh, experimental experimental i gotta write this down not Mm -hmm. experiential yep experimental archaeology what is it so experimental archaeology we're focusing on that first word experimental as in doing experiments so this is slightly more quantitative um and you are measuring results to gain more information so It's a research tool that uses a scientific approach with historical practices in order to learn things that you wouldn't necessarily know just by looking at the archaeological record or the historical record on their own. So maybe not everything is going to involve numbers and measuring, Mm -hmm. right? Because there, but at least the goal is informational, both as in terms of trying to capture information. That you might get out of it like oh like how long might it take to do something like this you know how how what's the ability to do it and so on and so forth but also trying to construct information from sources mm-hmm. and then so my understanding is you have to be fairly conscious about where the gaps are yes and try to try to lay that out right exactly and there's obviously a certain extent to which you have to do the experiential part before you can do the experimental part right right so for example um once i had learned how to spin and learned how to spin well enough that i could do it consistently then i could do the experimental part for my dissertation which involved weighing the spindle that i was using and timing myself spinning so that I could figure out how long it would take me to spin certain quantities of wool and how many yards of thread I got compared to the weight of it and things like that. So then I could get quantitative data. But if I had tried to do that a month in after I had learned how to spin, then that information wouldn't have been as useful. But you were able to combine that, you were able to cross-reference that with some other information that did have numbers in it. Do you want to say about what that was and how you were able to kind of get some interesting data out of it? Why don't you mention uh, what what that source was that you were cross-referencing it with? Okay, so Diocletian, the Roman Emperor Diocletian, tried to combat inflation by coming up with a price edict, which basically gave the maximum price that people could charge for a bunch of luxury things. Mm -hmm. And um, one of these things was the labor for spinning and the cost of materials for certain kinds of textile uh, materials. Now, since this was a maximum price edict, it probably doesn't give us... I mean, it definitely doesn't give us the base prices, and it doesn't give us the basic materials, but it does give us the prices for things like silk, or purple-dyed silk, and Mm -hmm. 
the cost of spindles and stuff like that. So combining the information from the price edict with my own quantitative data from uh, analyzing my own spinning. Oh, and one more, th- one more thing. The edict also didn't just say the cost of goods. It also had the maximum wages, right? Okay, yes. so if you can combine that together, yeah, uh, what, what information can we find out? We can find out the amount of time that it would take to spin a pound of silk, and it tells us the, the cost of a pound of silk, um, and the amount of time that it would take a spinner to make enough money to buy that pound of silk. So we should note the uh, price edict was not a very successful thing in the long run in history, right? Like It price... turns out capping prices is not a good way of stopping inflation. This is very well studied in economics. Price, price fixing just generally does not work. But it's still useful to us because we have information then on mm-hmm. what the relative amounts of um, the cost were at that time. And that's useful to historians. Yes. Um, Unfortunately, I do not have that page of my dissertation in front of me right now, so I don't have the actual numbers to give you on this podcast. We can put some stuff in the show notes. So the the spinning stuff is interesting, and again, we're gonna where there's more to say about that, but let's let's just talk about some more examples first. Um, you also recently um, celebrated getting a major section of your dissertation done by working on a craft project then related to another part of your dissertation, as I understand it. Would you like to talk about the giant structure sitting in your office right now? Yeah, so I briefly mentioned it earlier. Several years ago, when we lived in an apartment and had far less space, and I did not have access to any saws, I built a small, I think 18-inch, replica of a warp-weighted loom, which is the type of loom that was used in most places in the Mediterranean. It was definitely used predominantly by the Greeks and then the early Romans. This most recent project I had is a Roman tubing upright loom, which is the type of loom that replaced the warp-weighted loom for the most part in the Roman world. So, By the imperial period, it was the type of loom that was mostly used. Now, this term we're talking about, experimental archaeology, has archaeology in the term. So the warp-weighted loom is easier archaeologically to identify because it has weights that are made out of stone or clay um, or sometimes bone um, and sometimes other materials that hold the warp thread. So that's the threads that vertically go up and down on the loom. And so that survives. Basically because that's the type of material yeah. that tends to survive. Because it's non-perishable. Right. The two-beam upright loom, however, is basically a frame loom on a larger scale than maybe the frame looms you might be able to get at a craft store today. So... It's entirely made out of wood, and there might be some metal components like nails or bolts or something like that, but they're just generic fasteners. So archaeologically, we don't have much of a record at all for these. Because it rots away. Yeah. So it's slightly less uh, archaeological and more based on images. So we have two images of them. Mm Mm-hmm. So really, basically, you had a very short loom that you built in the past Mm -hmm. and a very large loom that's about as tall as you now. 
Um, it's taller than me. It's six feet. Oh, okay, great. It's taller than you. I guess the question is, with less material surviving, how did you go about figuring out how to reproduce it? So we do have two images, two Roman images of the two-beam upright loom, and it's technologically rather simple. It's basically, as the name implies, two upright beams, and then two horizontal beams connecting it, and then instead of having those warp weights that keep the tension on the warp threads, you just wrap the warp around those two horizontal beams, and that provides the tension. But a lot of it has to be probably a certain degree of guesswork, I'm guessing. Yes. Okay. Um, And then there, there are some ethnographic comparisons. So people who are still using similar looms today um, that we can kind of extrapolate from. For example, your cousin Wendy was doing work in Ghana and I just saw on her Facebook uh, one day a photograph of a loom that looked almost exactly like a Roman two-beam loom um, that was still in use today in Ghana. And you, one of your the books that you're you have been studying, uh, also has examples of other people trying to reproduce similar oh, yeah. uh, materials. So I'm definitely not unique in doing experimental archaeology on textiles. This is a long studied field since about the 1950s or 60s that people have been trying to recreate historical craft practices. So would you like to talk about any other examples that are not textile related? Yeah, so this this can be done on many, many, many aspects of historical cultures. So, for example, building practices, like figuring out how to build wattle and dub structures by actually doing it or you can do some some experimental archaeology that's actually closer to the kind of experiments you would do in a laboratory so making pine tar where you can control all of the variables involved in a laboratory environment so that you can figure out the difference that the exact temperature of heat you use, the proportion of ingredients and stuff like that, you can control all of those factors. One example that I'm particularly fond of, which is Janet Stevens, who is a hairstyle archaeologist, and basically she had a background as a hairdresser, and she studied Roman busts, Roman portrait busts, And specifically the way that the hair was done on these Roman portrait busts. And combining her own practical experience as a hairdresser and evidence from these portrait busts, she's been able to recreate Roman hairstyles that a lot of times people just kind of assumed were slightly exaggerated in portraiture, like Flavian hair with those giant sweeping amounts of curls that kind of seems unrealistic, but she was able to reproduce a lot of these things. So a lot of it by just like literally sewing needle and thread in people's hair, right? Exactly. Yes. So, and that's partially from the busts, partially from her own experience, partially from textual sources, like Ovid talking about how if his girlfriend, his mistress, whatever, 
upset the maid that was dressing her hair. She would uh, poke her in the head with the needle as she was doing her hair. And Janet Stevens looked at these busts and that evidence and said they weren't talking about like a hairpin or a bobby pin or something like that based off of the patterns in these things. So Janet Stevens is a professional, but not a professional academic, but has given lectures in academic spaces. I think you're categorizing her work here in experimental archaeology as opposed to, I guess, experiential historical crafts or reenactment communities, I'm guessing because of the kind of academic rigor type approach or what? Yeah, the level of academic rigor and it did require experimentation, right? It required testing different variables in order to see if you could get that Flavian hair to stand up the way it's supposed to. So let's talk about the advantages and disadvantages of this. I feel like this is much more than the first section. This has some pretty strong things in both directions, right? So um, what do you get out of taking this kind of approach? Well, you get... um, First of all, the ability to kind of hone down these historical practices um, in ways that's more rigorous than just the experiential part of it, right? So you can practice smelting different ores using only materials that would have been available and testing how hot you can get a fire using um, kilns that were built off of archaeological evidence um and things like that and there are just some things that you can't tell without the actual process of doing it or some inferences that you could have that once you actually put it into practice you realize that was maybe not a proper conclusion so what's what's the risks here So we talked at the beginning of this section about how you have the overlap of the experiential and the experimental. I have been spinning at this point for about six years, and I do it fairly regularly. It's a good kind of fiddly craft thing that I can do while I don't have to think fully about it. So I have quite a bit of experience, but I obviously don't have as much experience spinning as a Roman slave who spent most of her days since she was probably fairly young spinning. So the amount of time that it would take me to spin three yards of wool is probably still going to take me more time than it would take someone with the amount of lived experience. So you might be able to get guess kind of a range, like, well, probably, you know, probably this person is going to be spinning faster than me, but probably not more than twice as fast. Um, Like that seems Mm -hmm. very hard for a human being to be able to spin this without errors twice as fast as I'm doing or something like that. So you can make some sort of guess range, but you have to realize there that at that point, you if you're working with limited data um, and limited information about the processes, you don't really know for sure but you're still probably gathering more information and better ranges than if you hadn't done any of that is that about right yeah and one way you can kind of mitigate this to a certain extent is with ethnographic comparisons so there are cultures that still have people that spend a good portion of their day spinning by hand using drop spindles and 
if you can do an ethnographic study of those cultures and see how long it takes for someone who has immersed themselves in that task for most of their lives, then we can compare that. It also strikes me that even though that you might end up missing some things and there are spaces where you're like, okay, well, I don't really know this. I'm filling it in the best I can, right? Mm -hmm. Um, If you didn't do the experimental archaeology, it's not as if you wouldn't be doing that. It's just that you would probably not be doing it, um, plus also all these other experiences. So you, you probably don't want to assume that you're filling everything in correctly all the time in the gaps that you don't have the information. But if you, for example, if if I just did a textual reading on hairstyles and just only read documents and stuff like that, I might come to conclusions that would be very different than if I had the experience of actually trying to physically do things on people's hair. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're, you know, my own cultural biases might might come in and be like, well, of course, you know, they do some sort of, you know, product to stiffen the hair or something yeah. like that. Um, so, like aerosol hairspray definitely didn't exist. But... Yeah, it didn't exist. But, you know, maybe we can make it out of some fatty gunk or something like that, yeah, right? Which they did. Which they did, right? You know, but... Um, so, so there's always going to be biases, and you're 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 adding some information, but you have to it seems be aware mm-hmm. of where the things are not, where where you're filling in gaps. Is that about right? Yeah, and sometimes, um, so yeah, you're always going to be making some assumptions, and if you are troubleshooting and problem solving while you're doing experimental archaeology, just because you found a solution that works does not mean it's the solution that would have been done. Yeah. In the past. And, and it's it's also worth realizing that um, sometimes the contemporary understanding of things can be um, almost snootily based in our current experiences and, and not realize within the gap of time that things might be um, done differently. And this can be both a way to discover and uncover that... Um, Maybe we didn't understand there has to be some missing piece here, or it can be ways to accidentally fill them in. I also want to go back to the idea of combining skill sets. So when we were talking about Janet Stevens, as you said, her background was as a hairstylist, and then she used more academic rigor to figure out these processes. But a lot of time you need this combination of skills. Right? So if you are an archaeologist and you're trying to figure out craft practices, it's helpful to talk to people who have closer ties to it or to even combine different academic fields. There was an interesting study that I don't have in front of me, so I will link it in the show notes fairly recently, within the last few years, I think, of a researcher who was studying a manuscript that had a recipe in it for a medical treatment for an eye infection. And this researcher then teamed up with a colleague who... I believe, studied biochemistry or some sort of medical research. And between the two of them, they were able to reproduce this ointment. Yeah, this is that Radiolab episode, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think there was a Radiolab episode about it. Yeah. So so basically... We'll get in the show notes. Yeah. So basically, it's helpful in experimental archaeology if you could combine people with different uh, skill sets. Yep. Because if 
you are just one researcher trying to do it all on your own, you might overlook things. Let's move on to reenactment communities. What is this? Is this uh, is this all about the Ren Fair? Uh, the Ren Fair is certainly part of it, and this is the broadest category. Well, I, I mean, they're kind of all broad, and they're kind of all overlapping, but I think that reenactment has the most amount of variation in it. There's varying levels of research and historical accuracy, and it can be wildly different. I guess we should expand Ren Fair, meaning Renaissance Fair. Yeah. Where people show up and everybody is serious about representing the past exactly as it happened, with all the dragons to their biological um, correctness of the way that dragons looked in the in former times, right? Yeah. So it, if you go to a Renaissance Fair or Renaissance Festival or something like that, you have people, and Chris scoffed when I mentioned this earlier, but you do have people at the at Renaissance Fairs who use only the types of fabric that would have been available in that period, who don't combine fashion styles that, you know, wouldn't have been coexistent, who have done their research with some level of, you know, historical rigor. You find those people definitely at Renaissance fairs. You also find people who put their Tinkerbell dress on their five-year-old and come so that she can be a fairy. Sure. And nothing wrong with that. And both of those groups of people and everyone in between are welcome at the Renaissance Fair because it is a recreational activity. So that that's a, on the so so you're seeing a range there from people taking a more historical approach to a much more fantasy oriented approach, right? Mm-hmm. And when we get into um well, and so another famous um, kind of reenactment group i think maybe the the group that people think the most of when they hear the word reenactment is civil war reenactors right yeah. like so which like well it's not just civil war there are other war reenactments there, as well, there are other war, war reenactments but i feel like civil war reenactments are like the like the it's a stereotype that that everybody thinks about right and mm-hmm. like eating hardtack we have made hardtack by the way mm-hmm. uh, but the that, but the, that was that was an experiential craft uh craft practice that chris and i recently we are are not civil we're not civil war reenactors anyway we We just wanted to try hardtack yeah and Um, try making hardtack but uh um but anyway the that that's an aside uh hardtack aside neither uh, neither of us broke our teeth neither of us broke our teeth but we did have to soak it in hot liquid quite a bit yes before we ate it um you can if you soak it in hot milk you make like add some cinnamon sugar to it probably not historically accurate but you know delicious it can be delicious um anyway um the so so yeah actually there's a a, um a a free software game even that i like to play uh called cataclysm dark days ahead and they you can choose these different professions like you can be um you know you can be a a mall cop you can be you know just like a scientist you can be all sorts of things it's like an apocalyptic universe but they've got two professions that i think are entertaining they have historical reenactor and you you know come with all this equipment of somebody who is clearly going to a war reproduction thing and then there's a historical reenactor who is you know like basically like the the person who's clearly it's like the two ends of the people going to the run fair basically Mm -hmm. um but but um so i guess in 
Are there other examples we want to get into here before we get into the yeah. um, kind of pros and cons? Yeah. So uh, one group that was very helpful for myself uh, was the Society for Creative Anachronism, otherwise known as the SCA. And they're a group that does basically historical reenactment, but for pre-Renaissance, because a, a, a lot of historical reenactment uh, and costuming and stuff, stuff like that is based on the Renaissance or later. Um, and the way that that helped me is I initially learned how to spin by watching YouTube videos. Um, and then eventually discovered that there was a local society for creative anachronism uh, group in Madison and they had a fiber arts guild. So um, me and my mother started going to that fiber arts guild where there were several people who had much more experience than us in spinning and were able to um, help us learn better practices. I was part of the Fiber Arts Guild, but there are guilds for different historical practices in that group, and they do various historical crafts, so you can learn how to fletch arrows, you can learn how to shoot the arrows from the bows. They have sword fighting. They also have boffing, which is basically... It's LARPing. It's basically like LARPing, where you have battles with Foam weapons. Foam weapons so that no one gets hurt. <laughs> um, so it is, as the name implies, anachronistic, but they have a certain level of historical rigor in some of the craft practices, at least. Okay. There's another example that I want to get into and when, when we start talking about the pros and cons specifically. So I, I, I also think uh, before we go any further... I think we, we kind of want to talk a bit more to the pros and cons about kind of both ends of the spectrum, because I think mm -hmm. they're both doing different things that are kind of interrelated um, and uh, you get different kinds of pros and cons to them. And you also get the things I, I think my my compliments and criticisms shift pretty widely depending on which part we're talking about. Right. Um, and like, I think that you can do both sides of things well as long as you're conscious on both sides of things a very the fantasy thing and the historical reenactment side of things um it's when i guess this kind of non amount of consciousness seeps in that i feel like uh, i get kind of troubled by things so so let's let's talk about the um let's talk about the fantasy side of things first mm -hmm. um before we talk about kind of the historical reenactment side so on the fantasy side of things it feels like that's in general, more of an embracing that we're allowing our imaginations to fill in a lot of gaps. We're allowing for escape. We want a certain degree of kind of historical flavor to things, but we're not going to be held back on it if we allow magic to exist, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if, would you say that reflects your thinking yeah. as well? So, so the place where I get hung up is when people are like, yeah. You know, we're going to go on the fantasy side of things, but then they start, you know, um, being harsh for uh, against people for 
introducing things that they're like, well, that wasn't historically accurate. Like, you know, oh, well, there weren't, you know, women knights there. There weren't, you know, people of color, you know, in this this kind of profession. There weren't blah, 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 which, you know, there probably are some outlier examples in those various things that they're talking about. They might be right that history had problems where those things are um, not allowing them to be represented, where we're not where there were injustices in the past, but the kind of argument that, and we need to preserve that there when you also have dragons and you have magic spells and stuff like that. It's like, okay, you know, you're giving, you're saying like, this type of stuff isn't realistic. I'm so mad. I'm going to fly off on my dragon. That's where (laughs) things really bug me, I guess. Yes. If you have a dragon and that's okay, but having a, you know, woman person of color as a knight is not okay. Like that's, that's the point where the parts of history that you're codifying are potentially problematic, even though you're allowing other levels of fantasy. So, um, do you have more that you want to say on that, or do we want to jump straight to the kind of parallel version of that in the um, historical reenactment? No, I think I think one of the pros of the fantasy side of it is that almost all reenact historical re- reenactment, to a certain extent, is fantasy, right? It's in fantasy in that you are putting yourself in that world. Right. This so isn't your day-to-day life. It's not your day-to-day life. You are pretending to be a different person. And you can usually hang up your um, your coat at the door, your historical coat, mm-hmm. and uh, whatever historical design of coat that is, and then go back to your normal day job, whether, you know, after after that, right? You know, mm-hmm. your, norm, your non-fan... Your real life. Yeah. In quote, Which, air quotes. Yeah, you can't see my air quotes, but they're there. Yeah. And and, I, and and you and I are both supporters of escapism, yeah. right? Escapism's important. And it can also be opportunities to reimagine things. Yeah. And well, and I feel like, I feel like full disclosure, I should say, I am a costumer. I have costumes for the SCA. I had a persona for the SCA and a costume for that. I have had various Ren Faire costumes over the past, like, 15, 20 years that I've made. I have a Regency-era ball gown that I've made. Um, so, and an Amazon costume based off of, like, the depiction of Amazons on Greek faces. So I definitely participate in this level of escapism and and that's a pretty wide range of how serious you want to take the historical component Mm -hmm. in each one of those things too right and i also have a steampunk costume in which case there's almost no historical component there's just like oh okay yeah victorian had these kind of hats at some point okay and everything else so the fantasy side of thing we're in support of it just be aware that if you're policing people about you know like oh well that that type of thing wasn't how it was you know don't be ridiculous if you're um, if you're allowing non-realistic components in the past. But now let's even get to the scene side of things on the historical reenactment side of things. In um, so let's talk about the positive side of things of like trying to do historical reenactment first, and then uh, we can get to the the fun mm-hmm. negative side of things too. Well, there so, is history coming alive. Right. And that can be really good, right? Yeah. You know, you you're 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 creating a set of people you're you're helping to encourage a set of people who are interested in components of history that might otherwise be forgotten in some way shape or form 
and encouraging studying those components of history, right? So yeah. that that in and of itself is a good thing, right? Yeah, and it's a good way to um, spark interest in history for people who might not otherwise be interested, right? right? Now, usually, since, you know, going back to the historical reenactment thing, uh, the unfortunate thing is that people have generally pigeonholed historical reenactment to being certain groups of people in history doing historical reenactment but that's not necessarily true there are lots of people who are trying to kind of do an anthropological approach of trying to revive practices Mm -hmm. from various groups throughout time that you could say in a certain sense is historical reenactment Mm -hmm. um and you know in that way can be also a crossover from the past into the present right yeah but there are certain dangers uh when you glorify history. Okay, so what are those? <laughs> well, if you're glorifying history and you're trying to stick to the facts of the time period, then that can also lead to perpetuating period-typical biases. So, racism, sexism. So so there's a, there's a certain amount to which um, I think some of these things also... I think there, there are kind of two ways that that manifests at risks, I'll say. One way is you perceive certain parts of history as being really fun and then you start getting stuck in a mindset of, how to put it, um, kind of glorifying the past. Yeah, the rose-colored glasses. The rose-colored glasses of the past. And that can that kind of nostalgia can be very problematic, as we've discussed previously on this show, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if you if you aren't conscious of that kind of nostalgia, you can miss out on some really dangerous things that are also happening in those narratives. So you have to be conscious while you're doing it of like who, who's being, who's being permitted to have agency in history and who isn't right. Yeah. And who's being permitted to have agency in your reenactment. So if you are being historically accurate and you have, different types of people who want to be involved. So if you're doing a Civil War reenactment and you have women and people of color who want to be involved, but you're trying to stick with historical accuracy, then that leaves women not on the battlefield for the most part. And it leaves people of color in the less desirable positions on the battlefield. Well, yeah. The, um, yeah, I mean, you're, 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 you're pigeonholing somebody back into a role of slavery, right? So yeah. that's, and so now I think is the part where we want where it would be worth bringing up the Michael Twitty stuff again, but also before as kind of a precursor to that, I think also there is um, there's a show that I think you and I both enjoy on YouTube. <laughs> it's on YouTube, but also are conscious of some of the challenges of that show it mm-hmm. is a show called uh the look, townsends yeah which uh basically has well why don't you describe it um it's a show that uh the the proprietor of the show is also the proprietor of a business that sells uh sells items to reenactors so they sell historical crockery and costumes and historical cookbooks and stuff like that and they have a brick and mortar store and then also an online shop and then their youtube series 
shows various aspects of life in the 18th century, which is largely geared towards a reenactment community. Right. So there there are a lot of positive things to say, I think, about this show as in terms of so in terms of people studying this type of stuff, I think you could say they they actually do a reasonable amount of work to try to accurately reproduce um what they're showing off and mm-hmm. try to understand it. Um and I think that from that kind of structural standpoint, the show does a pretty good job. Yeah. And um there's a famous New York or there's a New York Times article that came out not too long ago also where um that was talking about how they made a, a dessert called the Orange Fool. Which yeah. is an actual historical dessert. And a fool is a type of dessert that could have been made out of any type of uh type of fruit, right? So yeah. There's plum fool and apricot fool and orange fool is just a variant. And there is a um a bunch of Trump supporters that got mad because they thought that it was making fun of Trump, which the person who made the show definitely was not trying to do. Um, and then actually was like, I don't see why we have to have all these politics getting into blah, blah, blah. Um, so I was curious because I saw in that article that also that they had Michael Twitty on the show. And I'm like, well, you know, I thought that that was kind of weird because I actually think it is important to think about, um, you know, maybe Trump has no bearing on that show um, for them specifically or little bearing on the show, you know, let's say. Um, so I can understand that, I guess, to some degree. So I was like, well, you know, apparently he has on Michael Twitty at some point, and Michael Twitty is quite legit as in terms of thinking seriously about this stuff. So we'll we'll watch the show a little bit to get a sense of what it is, and then we'll watch the Michael Twitty episodes. And I guess our feeling when the Michael Twitty came on the show was we were both a little bit disappointed by how the show handled that episode yeah because michael twitty came on as a guest and usually the host john townsend is making the recipes and they're recipes that he's familiar with and they're often from cooks cookbooks that you can buy from his store um and stuff like that and he always has very exaggerated like uh exaggerated mm, responses when he tries them uh, but Michael Twitty came on and the recipes that he showcased were slave recipes that were derivative of recipes that came from Africa. Uh-huh. And, and they were really interesting. They were really interesting recipes I really wanted to try. But the one, there was one that was very, that was like kind of like a, almost like a fluffly frittery type of thing, but that looked like, you know, not what i guess the host of the show is expecting and he was just like huh well that's interesting right and he did that for a couple of the recipes but then the one that was like stuffing he's like "Mm, that's exactly what you expect out of stuffing yeah because he had expectations for stuffing but he didn't have expectations for the other i mean this was our read on the episode at least um you know the, the the other thing was is that Michael Twitty tends to be very serious in his trying to analyze um, history and the historical role of um, slaves and this stuff. And it felt like that was like really rushed through mm-hmm. in the episodes. And I was just kind of disappointed in that type of way. So I think, again, I think the show is good in many ways. 
but it kind of it left us wondering like well why why would you have michael twitty on if you weren't going to talk about the social aspects right like that's like because with michael twitty that's that's a huge portion of that's like all, what his th- stuff is about right yeah his he has he has a tour called the southern discomfort tour which is about talking about the slave roots of southern comfort food hmm. um and how it is uncomfortable for a lot of people to talk about that right so um so i mean you know our speculative guess is well maybe the people who make Townsend's realize that a lot of their audience is in a very much of their audience maybe wouldn't be very welcoming to a deep historical dive, even if the person making it was sympathetic. But, you know, that still didn't feel super great for us. And so we're not trying to end this episode by hating on hating on that particular thing. It's just it seemed like an example of a missed opportunity. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so let's let's end on some happier notes. Okay, well, why don't why don't you walk us into some happier notes? So, first, I want to just uh, kind of recap these three things by talking again about my spinning. So, as an example for each of these three things, so learning to spin in and of itself, learning to spin on a drop spindle was experiential an experiential approach to historical crafts, and then quantifying that so that I could get usable data for my dissertation and measuring the amount of time it took me, the amount of thread I got per pound of wool, etc. That was experimental archaeology. Me, dressed in a Roman-style tunic with a hairstyle that was based off of one of Janet Stevens' publications, spinning at a Society for Creative Anachronism event, was historical reenactment. Mm-hmm. okay very good so that's a, that's a nice summary of all those three different things uh any anything else as in terms of a review or history or anything else you want to throw in here or? yeah we haven't talked much about what you've done well we mentioned the uh the um 6502 assembly i guess but uh yeah but i want to talk more about the uh foodways the historic foodways that you've done okay well why don't why don't since you have something in mind why don't you say it Uh, so several years ago when I was working on my master's program, I was writing a paper about basically what was known and circulated about women's health and how that maybe had an impact on the way that they were represented both in medical texts and just in art in the Renaissance period. And so I had a bunch of books taken out about the that talked historically about how women were perceived in the Renaissance. And when I was doing my research, I realized that one of them was gone. And it was a book about um, diet and the way that diet was used to control the humors. So basically the way that diet was used to uh, control health in the humoral system of medicine, which is basically you have four humors and they need to be in balance. It is not a scientifically rigorous form of medicine. Right. But anyway, where was my book, Chris? Uh, I was reading your book um, because it was about food history. And I was like, oh, this seems interesting. So I was just reading it. 
Um, was that was that at the same time that you had also pulled out the book on medieval cooking as well, or did you pick yeah. out that one too because you were like, oh, you read the Renaissance I think, one? Yeah, I think that that was my next round at the library. It like came up in my like as something similar. I'm like, I'll pull this one out for Chris. Oh yeah, I guess you. I think you had medieval and Renaissance at the same time, but then you pulled out the Roman cooking one mm-hmm. as a separate one. So yeah. in a very short time period, I was reading um books that morgan was supplying me on uh, medieval yeah, women you, and you went and backwards though you started at renaissance yeah. then medieval and then roman yeah that's right so um but it was really interesting to me and actually the strong parallels um the the large amount of influence that roman cooking also had that flowed into even medieval and renaissance cooking what really shocked me mm-hmm. um but also medieval and renaissance cooking um picked up a whole lot from um from cooking in in uh in the middle east and africa yeah. that i didn't i didn't realize uh and the the uh both from like kind of peasant pottages but like that kind of stuff fascinated me, and in all three of these periods, I was surprised at how much honey and vinegar played roles in mm-hmm. cooking, especially in Roman cuisine. Just the massive amount of honey and vinegar, and also garum. Yes. So Chris, Chris made a variation, a, a basically vegetarian version of garum, which is, which garum is a pickled fish sauce that was a staple of the Roman diet. Well, there's garum. We probably have a vegetarian version today, which is soy sauce, because yeah. soy sauce was a Buddhist. I have it sitting next to me. Yeah, so <laughs> soy sauce was a Buddhist alternative for those Buddhists who were vegetarian um, to uh, fish sauce, um, and so you know, in in that sense, um, that's already something that we have. But the my version also. So let's get into the anachronistic. Uh, reenactment community side so we had a there was an event we went to do you want to explain what the event was so one of the one of the people in my latin class uh threw a roman banquet and basically my entire latin class and the teacher which by the way my entire latin class and the teacher was less than 10 people um were invited and we all brought roman dishes and again you can't see my air quotes but they're there yeah so um i think i probably brought the most realistic dishes because I, I think you did the most research i did made, even though you weren't in the latin class yeah i made vegetarian versions of many of the things that were in the book many of which things would have been vegetarian mm-hmm. and some other ones which i converted but for the garum sauce uh i guess we were watching a lot of deep space nine at that time that was actually probably one of the things where i diverted the most because i kept thinking about yamak sauce that all the cardassians are into and they're like everyone else hates everyone else hates and they're like these super imperialist you know characters in the show yeah and so like i i made mine very inspired off of like looking at that like thick liquid that was in there um so in reality probably soy sauce would have just been closer off from the get-go but i made it a bit thicker and i made it a bit uh and uh but i did make it a bit fishier also by using seaweed um but that was you know that was an interesting way i thought in which you know kind of the fantasy side of things also in entrenched you know like encroached in on the historical research Mm -hmm. because it probably wouldn't have been as thick if i if i hadn't 
been watching so many Cardassians pouring yamak sauce onto their food. And everyone else wincing. Yeah, that's right. Yep. So yeah, I, I just want to reiterate that all three of these things overlap in many ways. And a lot of it overlaps, f- like for myself, it it it's all interconnected. But you can have varying levels of connection. The experiential uh, portion of it plays a large role in both the experimental archaeology and the reenactment communities. But they don't all necessarily always overlap. And there was a... there. There's also a lot of pushback um, in academic communities. A lot of times academics discount experimental archaeology as a proper research tool because they associate it with reenactment communities. I mean, don't, don't you think there's a component of this that's just like the same level of dismissiveness that people have always had to nerdy things, but like, which has been decreasing over time anyway. Like, oh, you know, all those Dungeons and Dragons, like role-playing nerds, like, you know, they're the, the, like the most dismissible people in society for everything up until this last decade mm-hmm. where like suddenly people are like, ooh, maybe Dungeons and Dragons is cool. Like, you well, know, and I feel like though, as academics they're not they're not looking down on people for being nerds they're looking down on people for not being academically rigorous so yes. it's it's a it's it's a social hierarchy based on education and realistically probably also classism at a, to a certain extent yeah but i mean there's also a certain amount of snootiness gatekeeping which probably does also mm-hmm. have tie-ins with looking down on the nerds I'm just arguing that graduate students and professors are nerds. And I can say this as a member of that community. Yeah, no, that's... But they're the official nerds. They're the official nerds. That's right. Well, I think... um, I don't believe in official nerds. So that's that's where I want to end things. On unofficial nerdery. Yeah, yeah. Down with the 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 official nerdness gatekeeping. That's that's gonna end. Um, I feel like that's a good end. You know, um, ish. So bye, everybody. Uh, if you are enjoying your fantasy, uh, enjoy your dragons and enjoy whatever else you want to throw in with that as well. So. Yeah. And if anyone wants to send us pictures of their historical crafts on the social medias, yeah, please yes. listen to our outro, which gives our oh yeah information. We wanna we wanna see your stuff. Yes. Yeah. All right. Okay, bye everybody. Foss and Crafts is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. It's hosted by Morgan Lemmerweber and Christopher Lemmerweber. The intro music is composed by Christopher Lemmerweber, meaning myself, in Milky Tracker and is released under the same license as the show. The outro music is Enchanted Tiki 86 composed by Alex Smith of The Cynic Project, and is waved into the public domain under CC01.0. See cynicmusic.com for more information. You can get in contact with us on the Fediverse, Foss and Crafts at octodon.social, on Twitter as at Foss and Crafts, or you can email us, podcast at fossandcrafts.org. We also have a chat room. Join our community hash Foss and Crafts on irc.freenode.net. 
If you'd like to support the show, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash C-W-E-B-B-E-R. That's it for this week. Until next time, stay free and stay crafty. I had wings that were shaped like a butterfly to made out of a clock. Made out of a clock. Right, yeah. Which so, was a which in my in my elaborate story that I made up uh that that was a time travel device and they were shaped like a butterfly to mitigate yeah. the butterfly effect. Yeah, that's right. So we're we're getting a little bit too into our characters here. We have to be careful. This is not an RPG episode. I'm giving you a hard time. That but, wasn't an RPG. That was just, that was just dress up. That was just dress up.